Morning, Hope Rock Church. It's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, if you are new to Hope Rock Church, welcome. We always love it when people come and visit us. There are amazing donuts here every Sunday. If you come earlier, there's even more donuts. You can get as many as you want before everybody else arrives. But I think, you know, this is a long weekend, so there might be donuts left. So please take some home with you. Uh, if you are joining us online, I know that a lot of people are out of town this weekend for this fall break. Uh, I, don't know what the, I don't know what the holidays are anymore, but uh, it's a fall break. And uh, I want to welcome them as well. We are an excited family because God is building His church, right? And so I want to share something really cool about what God's doing in our family. We this week celebrated the birth of Hannah Mae Dittman. Let's give the Dittmans a hand, please. If any one of you know their story uh, and know them well, you'll understand that this is a child that is a miracle. But God is in the business of miracle, and this is how He builds this church. We're just having children. So if you don't have any children, it's time to start having children, okay? Because that's how we're going to build the kingdom. I'm just kidding. God builds... No, yeah, good. You guys just shake your heads there. That's good. You keep shaking your heads for a while, at least another 10, 15 years. Right, Nate? Hey, come on. Okay, but everybody else that's married and... You can welcome to join the party as well. We're going to have kids grow up in this church. But it is a miracle, and we celebrate with the Dittman family. If you know them, please gather around them, support them. Obviously, having a child, especially a first child, is a challenge. Uh, not that I ever struggled. I mean, I was an amazing father. Uh, Catherine, she was okay, but, you know, like I helped her through. So <laughs> I'm just kidding. Having children is difficult. Uh, and so if you do know them, please gather around them and please love on them. We do have a meal train set up. Uh, Stephen Seacrest, who's on video this morning, he's back there. Uh, everyone knows Stephen. If you want to be a part of that meal train, he's raising his hand right there. You can look, raise your hand, Stephen. There we go. I'm so hard to miss you. But please go chat to Stephen. You can get on the meal train and you can support them with some meals. Amen? Great. So let's get on with today. Um, some weeks, you know, you work on a sermon or a preach, as we call it here, because preaching is a noun uh, in where I come from, right, Ms. Leah? And uh, sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you struggle. Uh, and so this was one of those weeks where you know, I just felt like there was a huge opposition, at least, and maybe it was my own sort of proclivities, my own insecurities, but this week was one of those challenging weeks, and we're going to continue with our series in Revelation. And it, and it dawned on me this fact that what we are preaching about and speaking about in this section of Revelation has a lot to do with the spiritual warfare that all of us face every single day. And I think all, all of us in this room are well aware of what spiritual warfare means. Now, I do think that sometimes in our lives, we excuse things as being spiritual, where they're actually just natural consequences to what we do. But there's a very real reality that the enemy doesn't want us to expose who he is. He doesn't want us to know who he is. He doesn't want us to know the way he works, because the more we know, the more prepared we are to beat him, right? to defeat him. And so we're going to continue this morning, and I do think that we are going to upset the enemy and his minions, and that's okay. I'm fine with that, if you guys are fine with that. Hallelujah. Amen. Because it's not going to just be me. You guys are going to come under attack too. The more we know, the more he doesn't want us to know. So last week we started this new section in Revelations, the seven visions, as you know. Uh, we have spoken about some visions that John has had, except those aren't the main visions. Just to be clear, the main visions actually only start in chapter 13. But we covered some important ground last week, and we reminded ourselves of some important things. And I just want to recap them for those that are new. We were firstly reminded that John, in seeing the heavens open and the ark of the testimony being revealed, that God wants us to know that we are involved in his plans for redemption. He's not hiding it from us. It's not a secret. Uh, we're not those weird kids, right? Uh, not that anyone has weird kids. But uh, I'm just saying, you know, we all have friends we grew up with that never know what's going on. You ask them, hey, what's happening? No, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I have many friends like that who never know what's going on. We are a people who know what's going on. 
God has told us what his plans are, and we know that the end ends with victory, right? That's a celebration. God is showing us. Imagine if he didn't. Imagine if we were in the dark. Imagine if we never knew what was going to happen from one moment to the next, how fearful we would be. God doesn't allow us to live in that place. The second thing that we saw was this amazing woman, a woman who shone with the radiance of Christ. Why? Because she reflected the glory of Jesus. She was a representation, as I said, at least in my interpretation, of the church both New Testament and Old Testament, those pregnant waiting for the Messiah to come, and those of us who live today with Christ in us who is the hope of glory. The good news about this woman being revealed to us is that God's plan for the redemption of this world isn't a new thing. It's not God's plan B. He didn't have to pull the fire switch in heaven because he realized, oh my gosh, something's going wrong in the earth. He knew before he created us, before he created this earth, that Jesus was always going to die on the cross. Why? Because he had you and I in his heart since then. I don't know if that doesn't encourage you. I don't know what will. The third thing we learned was that there is an enemy. His name is Satan, and he was pictured as this dragon, a dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and ten crowns. But here's the deal. No matter how scary Satan looks, no matter how fearful the dominions are under his control, because believe me, there are kingdoms in this world that are under the influence of the devil, what we know is how he operates. There isn't anything that we don't know about the devil. God made it very clear to us how the devil moves, how he thinks, what he does, and who he attacks. Why? So that we can hide away in the corner, so we can you know, put ourselves you know, in a bunker and say, well, hopefully one day he'll disappear. No, so that we can stand against him. The Bible says in James chapter 4, verse 4, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Satan has no power against God's children when we resist him. And so God wants us to know that we can resist him and that we must resist him and that we should resist him for the rest of our lives. The fourth thing that we saw was that Satan is a defeated enemy. The promise that was given to Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, again, was not a sort of Hail Mary pass that God threw to say, okay, well, let me fix this big mess. No, it was a promise that one day there would be a child, and that child would crush the head of the devil. He would crush Satan under his feet. And while Satan did everything in his power to bring the promised child to an end before he was born, we saw time and time after again that Satan failed. And you know what? He's going to continue to fail. And then lastly, because the church was removed, I mean, because Jesus was removed, the church became the attention that Satan focuses on. And so I said this last week, that we as the church are in the crosshairs of Satan. He's coming after the church. And this morning, as we unpack this next section, what we're going to realize is that we're going to hear about some of the events we've already covered. In fact, a lot of what we covered last week is going to be repeated to us this morning again. Except this time, I think it's going to give us a bit more perspective. So turn it in your Bibles to Revelations chapter 12. We're going to read from verse 7 together. But I'd like us just to pray first. Father, thank you for the wonderful opportunity that we have to hear your word and in that your plans. And also for us to hear you know, just what you are doing in this universe. Lord, it gives us great comfort to know that you are on the throne, that you are in control, Lord, and that you're involving us in this process, Lord. There is a plan for the redemption, not only of the world, but of all your people in motion, Lord. And we get to be a part of that. And so this morning, I pray as we unpack more of your scripture, that you would bring wisdom and revelation to us, that you would reveal more of your character to us, Lord. And as we prayed this morning, that there would be something of the infinite worth of who you are revealed to us. Even if it's a tiny bit, Lord, give us a greater idea, a greater revelation of who you are, Jesus. And I pray this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so now I've just, I don't know where I am. Okay, there we go. First thing I want to remind us of this morning that we're going to find in this text is that Satan 
has lost his position. We need to remember that Satan has lost his position. Revelation chapter 12 and verse 7 says, Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. Say that. He was defeated. Say it again. You notice it didn't say he might have been defeated. He could be defeated. He potentially will be defeated. One day in the future, he will be gone. No, it says he was defeated. Period. period. Full stop. It's done. He's been defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. This event is clearly happening because of something that we read in last week's preach. And that was the fact that this child that was going to be born, we saw the picture of Satan standing over him, waiting to devour the child in Revelations chapter 12, verse 5. But Satan could not get to the child. Why? Because the child was taken to where? To heaven. Jesus was resurrected from the grave, and then he ascended into heaven. This child of the promise that Satan had been dead set on destroying for millennia could not be reached anymore. Satan can't go into heaven and attack Jesus Christ. It is impossible for him because Satan and his minions have been removed. And there's something important about this. There's something that's going on here that is giving us a lot of context. Now, I want to say that I don't think that this event needs to necessarily be read chronologically. In other words, last week... In last week's preach, we heard about how Satan was cast out of heaven. Remember that? And with his tail, he swept down a third of the heavenly hosts. Well, now it's telling us exactly the same thing. But God's giving us a little bit of a, of a bigger dimension in, as to what is happening. He's talking about fundamentally what's going on in the supernatural realm and what has gone on. And so we're seeing this event at another point in the spiral. We're seeing Satan and his minions being cast out of heaven from a different perspective. And the first thing that we're introduced to here that's new to us is we're introduced to this character called Michael. Now, if you read the, the book of Jude, he refers to him as the archangel Michael. That's the only time he's referred to as the archangel. But Michael is clearly the commander of God's army. And what's interesting about Michael, if you read in the Old Testament, was that Michael was always the protector of God's people. He protected the nation of Israel. It says this in Daniel chapter 12 and verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people. Michael is being referred to here as the prince, the principality, the angel in charge of Israel. And there shall, shall be a time of trouble such as never been seen since there was a nation till that time. But at the time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. You have this beautiful combination of the old and the new in this, in this verse that Daniel sees. Daniel's seeing a vision in heaven, and I believe what he's seeing is exactly the same thing that John is seeing in heaven. You see, Archangel Michael wasn't just there to protect the nation of Israel against the principalities that were attacking them. He's there to protect God's people, to walk into the fullness of the inheritance that we have. And that gives me huge comfort to understand and to know that there are these powerful beings under God's control that are designed by God to protect us, to watch over us, to keep us. I know this might sound strange to many of you this morning, especially if you struggle with the supernatural, but we've had many people in this church testify to seeing angels in this place. I have never personally seen an angel. I wish I did, and I hope one day that I will. I know I will one day in heaven. But even on this earth, angels are around us all the time. And this is not a theology on angels. It's not about the angels that are giving you protection. Your God is your protector. These beings are working at the behest of God to protect us into the final inheritance that God has got for us. The second thing that we note about, note about Michael and his angels is they the ones doing the attacking. 
You know, I think that as we grow up and we watch Hollywood films and we watch all of these movies, right, and we think to ourselves, like Constantine, that there's this battle. Satan's trying to form a coup and overthrow the throne of God. Like he's up there with his enemies and snipers and they're all waiting to take God off the throne. He can't do that. Satan was attacked by Michael. All that he's doing is defending himself and he's being cast out. Satan cannot raise his hand against the living God. Nobody can. Satan has no power in the kingdom. He has no power against the Lord. And this notion that he's this being that one day is going to dethrone God is nonsense. He can't do it. God dethroned him. He cast him out of heaven to this earth. And the great dragon, verse 9, was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he has, he has been thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. This wording, being thrown down, is important because what it's telling us is that Satan no longer has a position in heaven. Satan has no longer got access to the throne of God. Do you know that Satan cannot stand in the presence of God? He has lost that privilege. He has lost that right. And Satan is angry because he can't see God. Can you imagine being withheld the one thing that is the most important thing, even for Satan, in the, all of the universe, that you can never get to that position ever again? That's how he feels. That's what's happened to him. And while it is good news that Satan has been cast out of heaven and that he no longer has access to God or his throne, where do you think he went? I mean, it's great news for heaven. But it's not such great news for us. I mean, it doesn't take a genius to realize that the world that we live in is full of deceit. It's full of evil. It's full of just stuff that like, some of us can't even wrap our heads around the things that are going on in this world. The, the level of depravity that we are seeing our society rise to, make no mistake, it's happened before, is happening again. All of it is under the control, the dominion, the influence of the evil forces of this world under the headship of Satan himself. And so Satan coming down to this earth means that he's in operation. And we have to be aware of that. We are fighting a supernatural battle. But you know what? The victory is ours, friends. But we have to learn to test the spirits. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Don't. Don't believe everything people tell you. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. These false prophets are people who pretend to represent the kingdom of God. We have to become better at defining or understanding who these people are because believe me, they will lead you astray, friends. And I promise you now, if you ever get the sense that we in this church, any one of us, leaders, deacons, or anybody is preaching a false gospel, turn around and run. But there are many versions of the gospel being preached today, many different ways that you can get to God. Those are all false and understand where it comes from. It comes from the enemy. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. They might be thinking, but a lot of these people out there who I know to be maybe a false prophet or I believe is a false prophet will tell you that Jesus came in the flesh and, he's died, and he died. This is not just speaking about somebody being able to confess it with their mouth. This is about somebody who preaches a gospel that's different to the gospel we find in Scripture. A gospel that says everyone can get to Jesus because after all, he died for everyone. His crucifixion was actually just a big Huge poster to the world that he says he loves everyone. You can get to heaven however you want. That, friends, is not the truth. And then he goes on to say this. And this is the clincher. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. The true gospel. The gospel that we find written in this book, unadulterated. Every point, every comma, every word. 
This is the spirit of who? The Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world. You see, Satan being cast out of heaven means that the spirit of the Antichrist is in this world. And you know what the challenge I have is? Is that we place a lot of emphasis in end times eschatology or end times theology on who's the Antichrist. Was Hitler the Antichrist? Maybe it was Idi Amin. Maybe it's this person or that person. I don't even want to throw names out there for who it could be today because I'm going to get into trouble. But let me say this. What's more important than who is the Antichrist? Because the Antichrist is actually Satan, just by the way. He is the Antichrist. What's more important is the spirit of the Antichrist is in operation and anybody who opposes Jesus Christ is Antichrist. That's the reality. That's what Antichrist means. Somebody who's against Christ. And so let's stop looking for individuals and thinking and believing and dreaming. One day this guy's going to show up with big red horns and he's going to be standing there with his big sword and he's going to destroy all of us. Man, there are thousands of them out there. And we just keep focused on who's this next one. They're all over the place. Test the spirits, friend. We live in a supernatural reality, a reality that now that Satan has been expelled from heaven, he's infected this world. And you know what he infects this world with? He infects this world with division, with destruction, with disease. Second reminder, Satan has lost his position, but he's also lost his authority. He's lost his authority to accuse us, friends. We've all heard this passage of Scripture. Maybe you don't know it in detail, but you've all heard at least somebody, if you're a believer and have been a believer for a while, somebody has said this to you at some point in your life. And it comes from Revelation 12, verse 10. It says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven. Notice, John is hearing this now. He doesn't see anything. He's hearing it. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of Christ have come. Why? Has it come? Because Satan's been cast out. So Satan's no longer there. He's not in the picture. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan is the accuser. He always has been and he always will be. His sole objective in the world, and can I say this, in the church, is to create doubt, division, and to divide God's people. And I just want to encourage us all this morning because all of us have fallen prey to that voice at some point in our lives. I know we're all holy here and we're all amazing and we're definitely better than everybody else out there. I get it. I'm just kidding. But all of us have fallen prey to this. It's when we allow ourselves to entertain ourselves with gossip, slander, malicious words, when we start to speak about other people without them being present, friends. That's the spirit of the Antichrist right there. He wants us to bring division and he loves it when we bring division in the church. We have to learn how to stand against it, friends. To understand, however, this verse's significance and to understand what Satan being cast out of heaven truly means, we have to be able to take a journey in the Old Testament. We have to understand that Satan actually once had a position of authority, that Satan was not just the head of heaven's uh, worship team, but he had a very specific function, a very specific duty to fulfill for God. The word Satan, or pronounced Sotan in Hebrew, is sort of found 15, no, sorry, 18 times in the Old Testament. 15 of those 18 times, it's found in three books of the Bible. Job, Chronicles, and Zechariah. In fact, it's actually found in five chapters. Five chapters mention the word Satan. And the word means accuser. It means divider. It means adversary. It means one who resists. I want to read from us from Job chapter 1. And I'm not trying to exposit this. We could spend weeks just in this passage of Scripture. But I'm just trying to give you an understanding of his function. In Job chapter 1, it says this in verse 6, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. 
Now the sons of God there isn't speaking about mankind, it's speaking about the B'nai Elohim, a divine race of angelic beings that God created to co-rule this earth with him. He said to them, in essence, I've created this creation, I've created humanity, the pinnacle of my creation. Help me bring humanity to the fullness so that they can replicate the kingdom of God. I don't know how many of these beings were on this council, but they were there. Go read Psalm 82 and you'll understand the divine council a little bit. And they present themselves to God. It's almost as if Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the creator God, the almighty God has called them in for a meeting. And Satan, the accuser, who also came among them, the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come, Satan? And Satan answered and said, Lord, said from, Lord, and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Satan's job was to crisscross this earth, doing what? Looking for people that he could accuse. His job was to bring them before God and say, you see this guy? He's a real rubbish. He's one of your people, but look what he's doing. That's his job. And he does it today. Even though he has no authority to do it, he's still doing it. He runs around this earth looking for us, looking for ways that he can bring division, looking for ways that he can tarnish our reputation as children of God. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? That there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. In other words, Satan, you keep bringing me these reprobates. But look at this guy. He's pretty awesome. This guy's a good guy. He's like amazing. He's doing all the things right. And then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. In other words, God, you know what? You're partly culpable to the reason why Job is so faithful because you've been bribing him. You see, Satan doesn't just accuse God's people. He actually accuses the character and the nature of who God is. And you know that that's what he was designed to do. Why? Because we serve a holy, holy God, a holy, holy God, a, a holy God, a holy, just God, a holy, righteous God who has no problem with anybody questioning his character because his character is always going to be made manifest for what it is. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hands. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. In other words, take it all away from him, Satan. Take it all away from him. But you cannot do one thing, and that is you cannot kill Job. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now, I've got to tell you, I mean, I don't know about you, but this passage of Scripture is really uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for me. Why? Because the first thing that we notice is that Satan and God are in a discussion. Right? They're having a conversation. Satan's not cowering in fear. God's not screaming at Satan. Satan is having a discussion with God in this divine council, in this group of beings who are called to co-rule with God. Satan's speaking to God. He's almost giving him a report back, like a board meeting. Okay, well, this is what I'm doing. This is where I'm going to go. Okay, try this guy. Great. The second thing that makes us uncomfortable is Satan never brought Job up. Satan didn't go to God and say, look at Job. He's a real rubbish. I want to get him. No, God said, have you considered my servant Job? The point I'm trying to make is in old ancient hebrew theology satan is not this divine opposition against goodness he was a being that was created to do a specific job and to do a specific function he had a place in god's counsel and i know it's hard for us to wrap our heads around this but that's what he did and it's going to make revelations 12 make sense we'll get to that now but in zechariah 3 it says then he showed me joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the lord now, just to be clear, the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. It's Jesus himself, God Almighty, standing there with the prophet, with the high priest Joshua. And guess who's standing there with them? 
and Satan standing at the right hand to accuse him. So every time God wants to speak to his people in the Old Testament, Satan's there waiting just to say, mm, did you know this about this person? Mm, this guy's not so cool. You made a mistake, God. You shouldn't have chosen this person. Satan was permitted by God to accuse people, but here's the deal. If you continue to read and study Old Testament theology, what you'll come to realize is that Satan, this being that God created, was often unjust. Because the very sins that he used to bring against God's people were the very sins that he deceived them into committing. That's why Revelations verses 9 and 10 in chapter 12 tells us that he's called the accuser and the deceiver. You see, Satan failed at his job. He took one job and he messed it up. He took it and he went to the nth degree because he was that guy that wanted to be the most important person in the boardroom. He wanted to show God that he knew more than he did. And so he would tempt people into sin. He did it with Adam and Eve. Remember how he also challenged God's character in the garden? He said, God doesn't want you to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he doesn't want to become, you to become like him. In other words, God's a megalomaniac. And it's all that understanding that, understanding that saw Satan had a role and a position to play that Revelation 12 makes sense. When John hears the words, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. What it's telling John and what it's telling us this morning is this simple fact. Satan being excommunicated from heaven means that he's lost his position and he's lost his authority as the accuser. He has no right to accuse us before God anymore. He has no standing before God. He has no place before God. He cannot accuse you. He cannot accuse me, and he cannot accuse every other child of God in this world. Now I want to ask you, do you think that Satan does that? Do you think that he's just stopped now and he's hidden away? See, Satan never got the memo. He didn't realize that being excommunicated from God's presence means that he should stop doing what he's doing, because he can't. That's who he is. And so he continues to bring accusations against us. He continues to lie about us. But every single time Satan brings an accusation against God's people, do you know what happens? He fails. Because those accusations hit a wall. And you know what's interesting about that wall? Is it looks exactly like the cross. Over and over again, accusation after accusation breaks against the wall, shaped like a cross. Why? Because when Jesus died on the cross and he said, Tetelestai, it is finished, guess what? Jesus meant it. It is done. There is no more accusations. When Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, now there, therefore there is now no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus, it's because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Stop listening to the enemy. Stop letting him bring accusations against you. Stop letting him condemn you. He has no place and he has no authority in God's kingdom to do that anymore. He has been defeated. He's been cast down. And the truth is, for far too long, we as God's people have allowed Satan to run havoc in our lives. We listen to the lies and the deceptions that he throws at us every day. And then we let him run havoc in our churches. We let him bring division in our churches every day, every week. Not just this church, any church. We allow him to do that. We need to take back the authority that God has given us, friends. Every time we allow Satan to take a root in our hearts, you know what he puts in there? He puts bitterness and unforgiveness in our hearts. He puts lies in it. He puts deception. It's time to rip those things out of our hearts and send them right back to hell where they belong. We need to be the kind of people who in the face of his whispers, in the face of his accusations, in the face of his deceptions, would, we respond, would respond to him with Scripture and remind him, Satan, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Who? Nobody. Why? Because guess what? It is God who justifies. Who is it that can condemn us? No one. Why? Because Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised from the dead and who is seated at the right hand of the Father and indeed is interceding for us. 
Stop listening to the intercessions of Satan and start listening to the intercessions of Jesus Christ who is fighting on your behalf for us to overcome the enemy. Satan has no authority to accuse us, not now and not ever. That brings us to our third reminder. We're more than conquerors. That sounded lame. We're more than conquerors. Amen. We are more than conquerors. Revelation 12 verse 11. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved their lives not even unto death. We don't like that part. We like the we're more than conquerors part. I mean, we're all more than conquerors. Yes! But they're conquerors because they didn't love their own lives. So again, this passage is clear. We have conquered Satan. Not will, maybe, could be, potentially, one day. When Michael comes riding with the heavenly host, we will conquer him. No, we have conquered Satan. Fact. Not a future tense statement. Fact. But we conquer him with two things. First and most importantly is we conquer him with the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb is the foundation of our assurance in Christ. It's the very foundation bedrock on which we build and form our identity as believers. What do we build our identity on today? We build it on superfluous things. If we're honest, I do it all the time. We build it on other people's perceptions on us. We build it on what the world says we are. We build it on what we have or what we don't have. We build it on what we want or what we don't want. Our identity is formed by blood, friends. And while this battle is a cosmic one, because it is a supernatural battle, let me tell you something. Our identity is formed on a historical event. There is nothing cosmic or supernatural about the blood that was poured out at the cross of Calvary. That blood soaked into that ground. It's been real blood. A person's blood. A historic event. It was witnessed by hundreds of people. The ascension of Christ, witnessed by hundreds of people. Our salvation, our identity is formed not just in supernatural power, but in fundamental existence, friends. That's who we are in Christ. That's our identity. That's who we're called to be. We overcome Satan when we take hold of our identity and stop listening to the lies of the world. We take our identity back when we teach our children to stop listening to the pressures that the world is putting on them and say, listen to Jesus because he loves you. We take our identity back when we put our phones down and switch off the social media and say, I'm not going to listen to that nonsense. I'm going to go back to Scripture. Now, I'm not saying if you're on social media, you're of the devil. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is our primary identity is the blood of Jesus Christ, the historical event that happened thousands of years ago on the cross of Calvary. That's who we are. Don't let the world tell you who you are. We are not working towards victory, friends. Often we live as believers saying one day we will be victorious as if we're trying to white-knuckle it to the end until Jesus comes back for his second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth coming. I don't know which one it is. But like we're just white-knuckling it saying, Lord, when you come back, everything will be okay. No, we're working from victory. We're working from victory, not for victory. We are in victory. Today, you and I are in victory because Christ bought it on the cross. It's an indelible fact. No one can take that away from you. The only thing that can take it away from you is when you choose to rely on other things for your identity. Are we the kind of people who live with our heads bowed in fear, crossed over, thinking, oh no, the world's gone to hell and we're going with it? Or are we the people who remember that Jesus won and because of that so did we, that Jesus is Lord, that no matter what the world or the enemy throws at us, we will remember that he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. The second way we overcome him is through the word of our testimony. Just like the verdict on Jesus' life was overturned, because believe me, Jesus on the cross was guilty. He was guilty for your sin 
and my sin and the world's combined sin, those that will choose to follow him. He was guilty, friends. He was filled with sin for the only moment in his life. That's why he cried out to God, Lord, Lord, oh Lord, why have you abandoned me? He felt the weight of our punishment on him. He was guilty for the sins that we committed. But you know what? In the moment that Jesus was resurrected and when he ascended into heaven, that guilty verdict was overturned. And every time you and I identify with both Calvary and the resurrection, we are identifying with what happened at the cross. That's our testimony, friends. That's the power that we have. We are no longer guilty. We have been set free. We are new creations in Christ. The old has gone. The new has come. Is that who we are? It's who the Bible says I am. It's who Jesus says I am. And the challenge with this is that we've made our testimony about stuff that it isn't. The testimony is that there is an eternity to look forward in heaven that Jesus bought for me. That's a testimony. We think that if we have a crazy testimony or some crazy stuff happened to us in our life, that somehow we've got this power to reach the lost friends. You don't need to have a crazy testimony to reach people. Because let me tell you one thing that all of us share as believers is it's not about what we saved from, it's about what we've saved into. Because guess what? Every one of us in this room have heaven to look forward to, right? Which means Jesus saved us all from a far worse future than our past, which was an eternity in hell. There's a world right now going to hell, friends. They need to hear what we've got, and that is there is a hope. There is an alternative. This is not an inevitability. There is a man who died on the cross 2,000 years ago. His name is Jesus. He paid the price in blood for your sins and my sins and our sins collectively. And if you just choose to believe that his sacrifice is enough, then you can be in heaven too. That's what the world needs to hear. Now, I'm not saying if you do have a dramatic testimony, there's anything wrong with that. But man, the power in your testimony has got nothing to do with you. It's got to do with Jesus. He is the testimony. And we need to share him on the street corners, at our homes, at our dinner tables, in our workplaces, wherever it is, friends. Because people need hope. But I want to tell you this. For us to become those kind of people, we need to become a kind of church that raises up leaders who stop looking at church as if it's an aquarium where we're just going to make the water nice and warm, right? And the food amazing and the chairs comfortable and the coffee good. Just so that when people come, we can buy another aquarium, a bigger one this time, and make the same good coffee, the same good stuff. Jesus never called us to be aquarium keepers. He called us to be fishers of men, friends. We have to share the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Church does not exist for our own comfort. It doesn't exist for your own benefit. And don't get me wrong, we benefit from the kingdom of God, from the body of Christ. But church exists for one thing. It exists for Jesus Christ, its head, his mission, his mandate, his purposes on this earth. That's why we gather on a Sunday. And yes, we can have good fellowship and good coffee and amazing donuts. And we can have nice screens and good sound and great music. But that's not who we are. Who we are is children of God with the message inside of us that will bring hope to a lost and dying world. Last point, Satan's time is short and his power is limited. Verse 12, re therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. That's amazing. Rejoice, heavens. Yeah, we got rid of Satan. But woe to you on the earth and see, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. Satan knows he's on the clock. Satan knows that he has a very short moment in time, a very short span in time to influence the people of this world, and he is dead set on doing the best he can to do it. 
He's like a dictator that's been ousted from whatever country he's been dictating over. And on his way out, he wants to bring as many people down with him. That's what Satan's doing right now. He wants to take as many people to hell as possible because if he can't have God, neither can you. That's what he wants. But guess what? We can have God and we can live in victory because his power is limited, friends. Remember what the church was promised last week? That in this time of great persecution, as Satan's crosshairs are on us, what is God going to do? He's going to protect us in the wilderness. He's going to nourish us. The same thing gets said here again. And when the dragon saw that, the, that he had thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. He's going for the church. But guess what? The woman was given two things, the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she's to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. There's that time again, 1,260 days, three and a half years, the same as the two witnesses. The church is in the gospel age. We have more power today, more power in our witness than we've ever had before in our lives. Now is the time to share the gospel. The serpent poured out water, verse, 16, verse 15, like a river out of his mouth and after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. Let me tell you, the, the, the enemy is going to come like a flood, friends. He pours out accusations, divisions, just all this nasty stuff against the church. He tries to bring persecution against the church. He tries to de destroy the church from within and from without. But guess what? But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Isaiah puts this so beautifully. He prophesies about this moment in time, and he says this in 59 verse 19, So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west, and his glory from the rising sun. In other words, from the east to the west, people will fear God's name again. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. I love the New King James Version of this. The Lord will lift up a standard against him. Do you know what I believe that standard is? I believe the standard that Satan can never overcome is a church filled with the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit. It's a people of God filled with the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit. What we need more in this age is the anointing, friends. We don't need more education. We don't need more clever preachers or great communicators. We need the anointing of God in this place. We need the power of God manifest in our lives because that power pushes the kingdom of darkness back. When we testify about Jesus in power, and let me tell you, you can't help but testify with Jesus with power because the Holy Spirit comes upon us. The kingdoms of God move forward and the enemy retreats. The gates of hell will not prevail against us, friends. That's what Jesus promised, and that's who we need to become. The band can come up, sorry. Verse 17 ends with this, and I'm going to close with this. The dragon became furious with the woman. See, now he's mad, because now he can't get to Jesus, right? Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He's taking his place of authority, and now he can't even attack the woman. He can't attack the church because God's protecting the church, just like he did with the nation of Israel with Pharaoh. He's protecting the church. And so what does he do? He goes off to make war on the rest of her offspring. The woman's offspring, the body of Christ, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. If Satan can't get Jesus, he'll go for the church. When he can't come against the church that is united in power and the anointing, he comes after us. Being connected to a local church is not something we do because we need a place to gather on a Sunday morning because we've got nothing better to do with our lives. Being connected to a local church, whether it's this church or any other church, puts us into the flock of God. We're under the chief shepherd's protection. We are accountable to one another. There is a protection amidst the body of Christ that we don't have when we're on our own. We learned that in COVID. 
COVID almost destroyed people's lives in the church. Why? Because we were separated from one another. This church will fellowship together. COVID or no COVID. Against the enemy and all of his schemes until Jesus comes back for us. It's in this group of people that we have power. That we have the ability to stand together, to pray for one another, to lift each other up when we're having a bad day. And I want to say this to you, friends, that even though we live from a position of victory and are victorious today, I want you to know that it's not easy. Living this life in this world is not easy. The fact is, preaching a gospel to a world that is dead set against it is hard. And it will come at personal cost. It will come with persecution. It will come with the loss of friends and maybe even family. But it's all worth it, friends. Because we are victorious. And I just felt like as I was preparing this week that God wanted me to read this over you this morning. And so can you close your eyes and bow your heads? I want to read a passage of Scripture that reminds us that there is nothing that the enemy can do to take the victory that has already been won, not just for Christ, but for us as His children. There is nothing He can do to take that away from us. Romans chapter 8 and verse 35 says this. And just imagine for a second, this is God speaking to us today. He says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I want you to say this after me. Say no. Now repeat these words. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Hope Rock Church, the victory is ours. The question is, will we live like it? We can and we should. And I pray that we all do.